Thank you, Ed. It's, uh, you would think now that I'm 60, I would outgrow the name Kenny. I guess for some people, I never will. Um, but it's great to be back here at Bethel. This was, uh, this was my home church growing up. Um, it was 25 years ago, as Ed said, that um, we first were sent out um, from here to plant Northgate Christian Fellowship, um, our church in Benicia. And um, I got to tell you, when we first moved back there, um, it was kind of right towards the end of the school year. And so um, my wife, Betty, was working for the uh, school district in Daly City, and our kids were attending school there. And so um, she continued, because it was only like two months left in the school year, and we thought rather than transferring them and changing schools and doing all of that, um, that it would be better if we just, you know, just she would commute back to Daly City every day with the kids. Um, they'd do their homework in the car on the way home and all of that kind of thing. And so, um, so that's what the decision that we made. That's what she did. And so she would every morning, like, early in the morning, pack up the kids, get them all in there, half asleep, I'm sure, um, start driving down towards Daly City. And um, typically, she found it worked best if they kind of picked up breakfast on the way. And so she would pull off in Pinole, I believe it was, um, stop at a McDonald's or a Burger King or whatever was nearby, whatever, change it, you know, change it up every once in a while. And they'd go there, they'd have their breakfast there, and then get back on the road and finish up the commute. And um, it was one of the first times that, uh, that she made that. And mostly, I had been doing the driving back and forth between Daly city in Benicia. So, um, you know, she'd just kind of been a passenger, not really paying attention to the on-ramps and the off-ramps. And so they stopped, they pulled off in Pinole, they had their breakfast. The kids were kind of cranky that morning. She was kind of beside herself with this whole commute thing and got them back in the car, got back on the freeway. And about the time she got to Vallejo, she realized she had been going the wrong direction. <laughs> now, I would have told you a story about when I went the wrong direction, but then I would have to make something up because I never... I never get lost, and I never go the wrong direction. Um, what I want to talk about today is a little bit about direction, because every life ends up somewhere. Every organization ends up somewhere. Every church ends up somewhere. And whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, the way that you are living your life right now is heading you in a direction. The decisions and the choices that you are making in your business, um, in your schooling, um, as a church, whatever it might be, the decisions that you're making now are heading you in a direction, and it will lead you somewhere. And I think as individuals, as Christ followers, I think as churches, our greatest calling is to end up where God wants us to be, to be following his direction, have a sense of his mission and his purpose in our lives. And so um, what I want to talk to you a little bit today about is finding your life mission, your God given mission. And I want to use a story. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with it. It's from the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, um, if you don't know the story, let me give you a quick little history background so you kind of know where we're coming from in all of this. Um, In 586, the Babylonians came in and overtook Jerusalem, overtook the nation of Israel, conquered them all, um, totally razed the city, knocked down the walls, destroyed Solomon's temple, carted off a bunch of people, some of the the higher-ups, the elite, and all of them, off to Babylon in exile. And and so there they remained. And about 35 years after that, the, the Persian Empire came through, and they conquered the Babylonians. And so now the Persians came back. But when the Persians came into power, one of the things that they did, Cyrus, issued a decree so that those who were in exile in Babylon could return back to Jerusalem. And so many of them did, although not all of them did. And they went back to Jerusalem, and the first thing they did was they rebuilt the temple so that they would have a place of worship. 
And so they are now back. Some of the exiles have gone back to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. And Nehemiah is one of those who is still living back in Babylon. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Um, If you want to follow along with Nehemiah chapter 1. I think we got up here on the screen. So here I'm going to read it to you. Nehemiah 1. It says, In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I said, Lord, The God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love and those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, And to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. One of the things that is very interesting to me in this story, the whole story of Nehemiah, and I encourage you, go back and read it this week, is there are no overt miracles There are no supernatural things that that, that everybody just stands in awe of. It's really mostly about hard work and dedication and following through on God's direction. And I think in that, it speaks to every one of us. Because you may not experience big flashy miracles in your life, but there is something about dedication and faithfulness and following through and discovering God's mission for your life and consistently following that that will lead you where you need to be. And so what I want to do is kind of talk about it. And what I'd like to do is give you three questions to ask yourself. Um, Actually, two of these questions, a number while back ago, I guess it was, um, I was challenged with these two questions. And it made me start thinking about them. And then I added a third one um, that I found helpful in my own life and ministry. And what I want to do is kind of share with you these three questions that are going to help you find your life mission. um, Mission maybe for your organization, your church, whatever it might be. But how to discover what God has for you. And I think it comes down to these three questions. In fact, I'm going to share them with you, and I'm going to tell you a few stories about how they've worked themselves out in my own life and in my own ministry. I want to start with this first question. What is it that breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? You see, a sense of mission and purpose often starts with a concern. It starts with something that... that It's not the way it's supposed to be. Something needs to change. The way things are are bad, and what I want is something better. 
And so that desire for a better future is what moves me from the way things are to where they ought to be. And it starts with that question, what is it that breaks your heart? As far as we know, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He was a fourth or fifth generation exile. It had been at this point 141 years since the nation of of Israel come to an end. That first Babylonian captivity. And so there have been generation after generation after generation. And now it's Nehemiah's turn. And Nehemiah is living in exile. But he has a heart still for the city of Jerusalem. He still has a heart for his home country. And so his brother Hanani comes to visit him. And he asks him the question, how are things back in Jerusalem? How are the people doing? What's going on back there? Tell me what's going on. And the answer that he gets is this. That those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In other words, they're defenseless. See, because in those days, the only real sense of protection and safety and security that you had was if you lived within a walled city. And that was your strength, that was your, that was your security, that was your safety. And so when Nehemiah hears about the city of Jerusalem, that they've rebuilt the temple, but still for another almost hundred years, nothing has been done about the walls. What that means is they're totally defenseless. That means that any of the surrounding warlords can come in and raid them anytime that they want, and they often did. And so it starts to break his heart. And it's not so much about the walls, it's about the people. The people living within those walls. When a concern starts to weigh on you. And you start to get this sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. I think that's the first step in discovering where God wants you to move and what he wants you to do. 25 years ago when we were thinking about planting this new church over in Benicia, and we started thinking about what kind of church this would be, one of the things that really kind of hung with me is it didn't make much sense to me to go move my family 35, 40 miles away, start a new church, and try and get other people from other churches to come and join my church. That didn't make any sense to me at all. If we're going to do this, what God started to speak to my heart was being a church for unchurched people. And the more that I prayed about that and the more that I thought about that and the more that I considered that and tossed that around in my mind, the more it became a heartbreaking burden. And we decided we wanted to be the kind of church where unchurched people would feel at home, would feel comfortable, would get a sense of what this following Jesus is all about. And so that, that, that just began to grip me more and more and more. And so we started making decisions as a church, as a fledgling group of people in my living room, about the kind of church we wanted to be and what that meant. And at the time, it was right on the heels of the Jimmy Swaggart and the Jim Baker and all that kind of nonsense that was going on. And one of the big, big issues for a lot of people, in fact, we actually did a door-to-door survey, one of the big issues that we kept hearing from people is one of the biggest perceptions of the church were they're only after my money that was a really big issue back then it still is to some degree but but it was a really big one at the on the heels of all of that nonsense that was going on back then so one of the big decisions we made is we're not going to pass a plate we're not going to pass an offering basket now for us that was the right decision i'm not saying every church needs to do that i'm just saying for us that was the right decision because that was one of the biggest roadblocks that people had and we thought if that's the thing that's keeping people from understanding what jesus has for them then we're going to remove that roadblock 
And particularly when we, in our living room, well, and even when we first moved into the first rented space that we used, um, there was like maybe by that time 30, 35 people. When you passed a basket, it was pretty clear who gave and who didn't. And if we had an unchurched yes, we didn't want them to feel put on the spot because a basket came by and everybody else was putting something in, so you're under pressure to do this. That was just one of the decisions we made. The other thing we found out in that survey was that um, a lot of people when asked them, why do you think most people don't go to church? One of the big answers was, I'm just too busy. You got too much going on. The community that we live in is a lot of commuters. They have a 35 to 45 to an hour um, commute every day into work and every day back from work. The weekend is their only time. And if they've got kids, it's filled with Little League and soccer and all those other kinds of things. So what we decided is, okay, we're going to do one hour. We're going to keep our services to one hour long. We said, you give us an hour on a Sunday morning, we will make it worth your while. We just started making all kinds of decisions that would help us reach those who, for some reason, had a barrier to church. I'll tell you something else that broke my heart. About three and a half years ago, I was reading a book called Unchristian. And it's written by an author talking about the people's perception of the church now in the 21st century. And the kinds of things that people had objections to the church. And we started thinking, okay, we got to change the way people view the church. And so we started making a whole bunch of other decisions about changing the way people view the church. In fact, we said, this is for the next three years, this is our model. We are changing the way people view the church. And we're going to figure out what those perceptions are, misperceptions are, and do everything we can to remove those barriers. All of those things started because what began as a concern started to become something that totally broke my heart. And the hearts of those that went with us. And it was really more than anything else about people. And that's where Nehemiah's heart was. It wasn't so much about the walls. It was what it meant for the people. Listen to his prayer. He says, these are your servants and your people. Whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. So God, these are, these are your people. These are the people that you love. These are the people that you redeemed. And they're living insecure, without safety, open to marauders and warlords. It's got to change. And it just started to grip his heart. Now, what's interesting is he didn't run out and do something about it. In fact, what he did was he spent the next four to five months just praying and fasting and praying, and fasting, and just waiting on God's timing. But it started when something broke his heart. So, here's the first question I have for you this morning. What breaks your heart? Is there anything that so moves you that you're just feeling like, this should not be this way? Is there anything? Because, you know, sometimes I think, if nothing breaks our heart then maybe we're not in tune with the things that break God's heart. And one of my constant prayers, and our prayers together as a church, is, Lord, break our hearts with the things that break your heart. Let us see people the way you see them. Give us that passion and desire to reach out to people that you died to redeem people that you care about, people that you love. What breaks your heart? What bothers you? Does it bother you enough to want to do something about it? Second question. It's a real simple one. Who are you? Who are you? 
the cha- chapter 1 ends with this simple sentence, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, that almost seems like kind of a toss-off sentence. Like, well, why did he throw that one in there? That has nothing to do with anything else that was leading up to it. Except it's a very telling thing because what he was, he was in a unique position. As cupbearer to the king, he was more than just a butler. Okay? He was part of the security detail. His job was to taste the wine or anything, the food and the wine, anything before the king would eat it. So that if it was poison, if there was some danger in that, he would be the one to die, not the king. Okay? So that put him in a unique position. Because as cupbearer to the king, he had direct personal access with the king of Persia. Now, the other thing about that, though, is even though he was a very trusted and loyal um, uh, security agent, he was still just a servant. And so he finds himself in this awkward position between cupbearer to the king, direct access, personal, can have a conversation with the king, and being a slave that you don't bother the king with your own personal stuff. And he finds himself caught in that little place. Dangerous, but important. <laughs> Opportunity, but risk. See, it would have been real easy for him to say the wrong thing at the wrong time and fall out of favor with the king and not only lose his position, but lose his life. But he understood that he was in a unique position to do something that nobody else could. And so what he does is, all through this four or five month period, he just continues to do his job before the king. But this weight is so down on him, so... so um, breaking his heart that he just can't keep up a false face. And after a while, the king notices that he's kind of downcast. He's kind of sad all the time, kind of moping around. And he asks the king, asks him, why are you so downcast? What's, what's going on? What is bothering you? And there he has the opportunity, and he shares his heart. And this is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 5. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. I believe that God has uniquely placed you in your setting, in your circumstances, for a purpose. I believe that is true of every Christ follower. That God doesn't just kind of let you go through life and end up somewhere. He really directs you and puts you in your neighborhood, in your school, on your job, in your career, um, wherever it might be, your church, wherever it might be, that God has placed you there for a reason. For Nehemiah, God had placed him in that position at that time with the opportunity to do something. The same is true of you. That God is working in your circumstances and in your situation and in your setting for a specific purpose. And when you discover what breaks your heart and who you are, what makes you unique, at that intersection, you begin to discover God's mission for your life. That God has placed you and is working in your situation, whatever it might be. You don't have to be cupbearer to the king. It's whatever it is for us. When we first started Northgate, um, what kind of happened by accident, I didn't plan it this way, it's just that our son at the time wanted to play soccer. He had always wanted to play soccer, wanted to get into soccer league, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't join soccer unless I would be his coach. And so I signed up to be a soccer coach, only because my son wanted to play soccer. But in that first year, 
because I was coaching soccer, what started to happen is that at the practices every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon after school, standing on the sidelines would be all the moms and all the dads and all the parents watching practices. And my wife, Betty, would be standing on the sidelines. And of course, you're standing there watching a practice for an hour, you know, and so small talk starts up. And people would say, uh, oh, are you new to Benicia? Yeah, we, we just moved here. Well, what brought you to Benicia? Well, my husband and I were, were starting this new church. Really? You know, we've lived here for like three or four years, and we have never plugged into a church. What kind of church is it? And he said, well, we're just kind of starting. We're still in our living room, but we're really trying to be a church for unchurched people. Really? That sounds really interesting to me. What, what, kind, what kind of a church is a church for unchurched people? And these kind of conversations would go on. And we had one family. One family in particular um, became pretty good friends with over that soccer season. And, and uh, they said, well, where are you meeting? Well, we're, we're still meeting in our living room. And the husband said, I am not going to anybody's church in the living room. That just sounds like too much of a cult. I am not going to anything. When you get a building, you let us know and we'll be there. And sure enough, eventually we got a lease on the old post office downtown. We moved in. We held our first. They came to the very first service. And they became charter members of Northgate. And the first baptism we ever had was in their hot tub in their backyard. <laughs> I thought I was just going to coach soccer because my son wanted to play soccer. But God put us in this position and along those sidelines and opened up opportunities. We have a guy in our church. His name is Rob DeSimone. Rob is a recovering alcoholic. Had been for years, just alcohol was just kind of ruining his life, ruining his family. Came to Christ, got baptized. Now he heads up a recovery ministry in our church. God used even his failings and his weaknesses to now do ministry. We have a, we have a new uh, staff member. She's been on our staff now for about a little over a year. Her name is Vanessa Zimmerman. Vanessa Zimmerman heads up our connections um, ministry. It's just she is kind of a first face for Northgate. She makes people feel at home, makes them feel welcome, um, you know, invites them in, helps them get connected into the life of the church. What nobody knows about Vanessa, very few people know this about Vanessa, she is an introvert, painfully an introvert. The, the thought of talking to people and meeting new people scares her to death but she is excellent at what she does. And you know why? She said, because being an introvert and knowing what it feels like to be the first time in a new place where I don't know anybody and I don't know what's going on and how that makes me feel, I've decided I can help other people who are dealing with that same feeling and help them feel at home and welcome. And she does a bang-up job. And she does it out of a position of weakness. So you might think, I don't, well, I don't have any special gifts or talents. I don't have any, I don't have any real, um, you know, empowering kind of things in my life. I don't have any really opportunities like that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. God has uniquely shaped you, and he's using his circumstances of your life and the situations of your life. He is working in all of those things because he has a purpose and a mission for your life. And it doesn't matter if you are 6, 16, or 60, he still has a mission for you. And you, and you might feel like, you know, my, my days are done with that. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm past that. I, you know, it's my, I'm in retirement now. No, 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 no. You don't get to retire from being a Christ follower. <laughs> it just changes. The opportunities are different. The opportunities change. 
But don't think because I'm 60, 70, 80, even 90 that I have no purpose left in this life. Yes, you do. God can use you where you're at. No matter what you've been through, no matter what your past, no matter what your struggles, no matter what your weaknesses, God has a purpose for you. And you ought to be about doing it. Because if you don't, who will? Who will? Is there anything that breaks your heart? And who are you? How has God gifted you? What are your talents? What are your abilities? Um, What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And in just a simple prayer, God, if you could use me in some way for your kingdom's purposes, I'm available. Which actually goes to the third question. How might God want to use you? How might God want to use me with the things that he puts on my heart that just break my heart, knowing who I am and the opportunities and the positions and the gifts and the skills and all of that that make up who I am? How could God use me? Because I do believe that at the intersection of who you are and what breaks your heart, you're going to discover how God can use you. And I'm going to tell you this, it's going to seem impossible. It's going to seem impossible. But you see, that's because it's God's mission for you. If it's something that you could do on your own, in your own strength, with all of your own talents and your own abilities, that wouldn't necessarily be God. It might be godly, but to fulfill God's mission for your life, it's going to be beyond you. God will use you, but it's going to be beyond you. And that's where you get to see God show up. So Nehemiah goes to the king, and he gets this opportunity, and he tells the king, okay, this is what's on my heart. This is what's going on with me. My brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem, the country that that my ancestry comes from, they are discouraged. They are disappointed. The walls are are burned down. They have no defenses. Would you send me back and give me a leave of absence to go rebuild the wall? Now, he had not seen the wall. He didn't know what it looked like at all. He just knew it was broken down, and God had put it on his heart to go do it. And so he prays, and he asks the king, and the king releases him. And here's the exciting thing. Not only does the king release him from his obligations as cupbearer to the king, the king actually sends him with a military escort and with letters and, and recommendations to be able to go to the forest from the king's own forest and cut down trees and bring the lumber. He, got, he gave not only um, permission, he gave him a military escort and building materials to go rebuild the wall. And when you take those kinds of chances and when you step out in areas that are beyond you, that's where God starts to show up. That's where you get to see God at work. And we've had so many of those kinds of stories in the life of Northgate over the last 25 years. Um, I'll just share a couple of them. The first one was um, we had been meeting in our living room for about nine months. We finally got the lease on the old post office downtown. Um, It was just kind of a small place. that They had built a new post office building. This was the old building. It was dirty. It was run down. Um, It had some dry rot work that needed to be done, all of these things. And um, one of the uh, families that started with us, uh, he was a building contractor, and I had construction background. So we made a deal with our landlord that we would do the dry rot work and the termite work. They would pay us, and then we took that money and we would use that to buy 
the building materials to be able to make this building usable as a church facility. And so we did all that. We, we, we'd done all the work. We did all the work ourselves. We got some volunteer help doing electrical, volunteer help on the, on the heating and air ducts and all that kind of stuff. And we had everything finished. We were just about ready to open the doors. We had even bought the carpet that was going to go in there, and we were out of money. I mean, like, out of money. <laughs> We had used up every penny we had. And when I went and made the purchase of the carpet, because that was like the last thing that needed to be done before we could open the doors. And I went and I met, um, we purchased the carpet and the guy at the, at the shop said, well, who's going to lay the carpet for you? And I said, well, um, I don't know. <laughs> I said, we have, uh, we have uh, uh, my brother-in-law, he was a carpet layer. He'd done some of that. So he kind of knows what he's doing. And we're just going to try and figure this out. And the, and the owner of the store said, no, 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 please don't do that. You're going to just ruin the whole thing. He said, I'll tell you what, I will give you the name of one of our regular carpet layers. He does some side work. Maybe he'll be able to help you out. So I gave the guy a call. He met me down there. It was on a Saturday afternoon. It was kind of one of our last um, work parties on this new building that we were going to be moving into. He came. Everybody had gone. It was just me. He came. Um, He went through the whole building, took, you know, all the measurements, laid it all out, did his figuring and figured it all out. And he said, um, he said, okay, I'll tell you what, I will do the whole thing for $1,800. Now, that, that, by the way, was a really good deal, okay, $1,800. But we didn't have $1,800, and I knew that. So I said to him, I said, well, you know what? I'll tell you what, if we help, I mean, what we really need is someone who can do the seams and the tucking and the joints and all that kind of stuff. If we do all the grunt work, if we kind of come as your helpers and we, we do it, could you give us more of a break on it? So he went back and he said, well, and I said, we are a church. You know, we can, we can write you a receipt for donations or whatever you'd like, you know. Um, so he said, okay, let me, so he went back in with some more figuring. He says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll do it for an even $1,000. He had come down from $1,800 to $1,000. Like, oh man, that's like half price. Well, we didn't have a thousand dollars either <laughs> so i said to him i said i said well i'll tell you what i need to talk to our treasurer because i'm not really exactly sure which was the truth i'm not exactly sure where we're at in our finances um, but i can i give you a call tonight and he said sure that's fine so i knew we, we didn't have anything we might have had a dollar or two that's i wasn't exactly sure so um so so he left i wrapped things up and on the way home I I swung by the new post office and we had a post office box there because we didn't have an address for our church Um, and I went in there and in there I pulled out the mail went and sat and I was kind of thumbing through it in my uh, in the car and I'm looking through it and there's a letter there and the the return address is from North Carolina I don't know anybody who lives in North Carolina Uh I wonder who that is so I opened it up and inside it there was a letter and the letter said You don't know me, but a friend of yours, who's a friend of mine, was out visiting me this week. And she was telling me that you're starting this new church. And God laid it on my heart to send you this. Folded up inside the letter was a check for $1,000. And I sat in the front seat of my car and I bawled my eyes out for a half hour. (laughs) Um, And we've had so many of those kinds of moments along the way where where it just, it, it seemed impossible, absolutely impossible. And God showed up. And that's what I want to encourage you with, because sometimes it gets really discouraging. Let me tell you, you would think, okay, you read this story and you would think, wow, if he starts out with an endorsement from the king and the building materials, it's all going to be smooth sailing from here. You would think that, how it all started out, 
And you would be wrong. (laughs) Because that's not what happens. He encounters all kinds of difficulties. He gets resistance from those who are within the city walls. Some of them, they have, they've lived with this for 100, a year, 100 years now. We just kind of learned to live with the rubble, you know. We don't really need to build the walls. He had all kinds of opposition. He had opposition from all the surrounding warlords. In fact, there was one by the name of Samballot who, who was just really against this whole rebuilding of the walls because that was just going to take away all of his livelihood. And he did everything he could. He tried to ridicule them. He and his armies would come in. As they were working on the walls, he would come out there and they would just ridicule them. He would say things like, what do you guys think you are? What do you think you're doing? You're building these walls. If a fox jumps up on them, they're all going to come tumbling down. He tried to discourage them. He tried to threaten them. He tried all kinds of things. In fact, at one point, at one point, he decided he's going to set up a trap for him. And so he sends an, uh, an emissary to Nehemiah who is working on the walls. And he says, come, come down, meet me in so-and-so village and let's sit down and let's reason together. Okay, I've been trying all these things to discourage you. Let's just make peace. Let's just forget. What he was going to do was he was going to kill him. And so he set a trap. And four times he sent an emissary trying to get Nehemiah to come down. And Nehemiah, in the middle of his work, gave this response. And and, and this is one of those responses that has kind of stuck with me and been just a good reminder when I felt discouraged, when I have felt distracted, when I have felt like giving up. And this is the word that Nehemiah said. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? While I leave it and come down to you. Here's the thing. Even if you are following God's direction for your life. Even if you're fulfilling the mission that he has given to you. It is not always going to be easy. There are going to be times of discouragement. I I came to a point about 10 years ago. That I just hit a wall. I I just totally hit a wall. So much so that I slipped into a clinical depression. That, that just, I was wiped out. I had nothing left. I, w- I was so discouraged. I, don't, I can't tell you the number of times I thought of quitting. The number of times I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe my time here is done. Maybe it's time for somebody else to take over. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's just, it's just too hard. And I went into a deep, deep depression. Stuck with me for eight years. And it was just like every day was just trying to get out of bed and do the next thing that needed to be done that day. But one of the things that kept going on in my mind were these words of Nehemiah. I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. I am doing a great work. It's too important. It's too, it's too vital. I cannot. Why would I, why would I stop? I cannot stop. And, and I want you might be here today and you're discouraged. You're discouraged in your faith. You're discouraged in your ministry. You're, you're, you're wiped out. Maybe you've hit an end and you're thinking, you know, why, why am I doing this? I want you to remember that sentence. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. In fact, I want to make sure you know this sentence. So it's up here. You can read it, okay? I'd like you to say it out loud with me, would you? Okay? I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Okay, now, let's say it like you really believe that. (laughs) Together. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. 
Whatever you are doing, whatever God is doing in your life, wherever he has you, whatever your neighborhood, whatever your job, whatever your schooling, whatever your ministry, whatever it might be, you need to go with the conviction that what you are doing matters for the kingdom of God. It matters for the kingdom of God. It is a great work, even if it doesn't look like a great work to you. You are doing a great work. You cannot come down. Don't give up. Sometimes ministry is just determination and dedication and a refusing to give up. We have been through roller coaster ride. For every one of those great yay God stories, (laughs) there have been plenty of down in the depths. I don't know if I'm going to make it stories. And I know, I know, after 25 years, there's probably a lot more of both of those In the future. But that one sentence. Has kept me going so many times. Doing a great work. Cannot come down. Cannot give up. Cannot let go. Because when your heart is broken by the things that break God. And you understand that he has uniquely positioned you and gifted you and and made you able to be a part of his work in that setting. And you are willing to say, God, if you could use me, however you could use me. I'm yours. I'm available. Then no matter what you come up against. You can always say, I am doing a great work. And I cannot come down. We had um, baptism not too long ago. And uh, John Cosmetis, who was one of our founding members, he was one of that original four families that went with us. We're sitting around after the baptism, and it was one of those, it was one of those, baptisms are just glorious anyway. Um, This one was at somebody else's pool. (laughs) But we were sitting around talking afterwards, and it had just been, we, we did it in the evening, we had a picnic afterwards, and we were just sitting around talking, and he And he turned to me and he said, you know, God would have found a way to reach these people. We would have been the ones to miss out on it. God would have found a way to reach those people. We would have been the ones to miss out on it. So at the end of chapter 6, this is what Nehemiah writes in his journal. So the wall was completed in the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Would you bow your heads with me? So those are three questions I want to leave with you. What breaks your heart? Who are you? And how might God want to use you in your setting? Maybe, maybe you're here and you've grown a little cold or dry. And if you were honest with yourself, you would say, you know, there's nothing that really moves me anymore. Nothing really breaks my heart. I'm just kind of going through the motions. 
I show up on Sundays, sing those songs, listen to somebody talk. There's nothing that's gripping my heart. And if you'd be honest enough to admit that to yourself and to God, and then begin to pray, God, break my heart with the things that break yours. You begin to discover what he has for you to do with your life. Maybe you have that sense of mission and vision, but you're just tired. You're ready to give up. Maybe even give up on your faith, but maybe giving up on your ministry, calling, your purpose. If either of those describe you this morning, I would love the chance to pray for you as we close. And if that describes you in any way, this is what we do at Northgate. Every, I give people opportunity to respond. And if, if that's where you're at, either of those, you just lost that, there's a dryness there and you've lost that sense of mission and purpose. Or, or maybe you've got that sense of mission and purpose, but you're just tired and discouraged and defeated. Could I pray for you today? Would you just raise your hand, hold it up for a moment, and if you would, look and catch my eye. Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah, 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 yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. You are doing a great work. You are doing a great work. It's too important. It's too vital to give up. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't know what it is to live in a relationship with God. And your life has been pretty aimless. And maybe for you today, it's a first step of faith to just simply acknowledge, you know, I've been living most of my life just for myself. But I believe God has something different for me. And if there's that sense in your life, I want you to know that is so true. God loves you so much. He gave his one and only son who came to this earth and gave his life on a cross for you because he loves you. And he has a life for you. And if you've never taken a first step of faith and trust in him, I want to give you an opportunity to do that too. And if that describes you today, it's a first step of faith. Same thing. Would you just raise your hand and hold it up for a moment and look up and catch my eye because I want you to know I'm praying with you and for you as we close. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So would you join me in this prayer? Lord, here I am. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for your mercy and your grace extended. Your love showing me. You've got a purpose. You've got a direction. You've got a mission for my life. Lord, first of all, I pray for those who are feeling discouraged or dry, that they would have a renewed sense of purpose, that you have them here in this place for this time, for your purposes and for your reason. And you have all the strength they need to finish and finish well. And I pray for those who raised a hand just saying, this is the first time I'm taking this step. In this moment, as they acknowledge their need for you, 
with all the faults and failures and the sin of the past, to start with a clean slate. Lord, would you bring your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy, and bring a new life. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.